My name is Israel. I'll be your tour guide today as we go on an exploration trip through, again, the, uh, the heart of Leviticus, some of the middle chapters of the middle book of the Torah. So I, you can uh, fasten your safety belt and prepare for takeoff. <laughs> We're going to have a great time with this. There are quite a few practical commandments in this parsha. There's this elaborate ritual in the middle for the cleansing of a leper, and a lot of it is quite symbolic. Some of it is easy to gloss over or hard to understand how it applies to our lives. At least I think that's how a lot of people feel when they read the whole book of Leviticus. So we're gonna, we're gonna go over some of this together and hopefully we'll chop up this meat of the word into little bite-sized chunks so we can, we can get this tasty steak, um, ingested into our spiritual systems. What do you think? Leviticus is like a big juicy steak. I mean, you're getting into the meat of the word when you get into Leviticus, eh? So we're gonna have a great time. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to set a context for some of our discussion today. We're gonna be talking about practical applications of God's commandments, um, and the role that the Torah has to play in our lives. Uh, one, one of the number one principles that we can keep in mind as we're reading this parasha is that we want to do what we can. Now, we can't do all of the Torah. There are quite a few commandments that don't apply to us if we live in the exile, that are not practical if there's no temple standing, etc. Some commandments only apply to men, so women can't do those ones. Some commandments only apply to women, so us guys can't do those ones. I actually kind of like that. It's kind of cool. It's like tailor-made Torah for each of us. And uh, so that's that's the number one principle. First one, uh, we even see this in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 32 this week, actually. In Leviticus 14, 32, it says, This is the Torah, the law, for him in whom there's an infection of leprosy, whose means are limited for his cleansing. So, basically, there's there's even provision made. If you don't have sufficient finances to cover the three sheep for the offering for your cleansing, then there's there's special provision made for that and you can bring a couple birds instead. So we get this impression that we do what we can, even with regards to our Passover Seder. I mean, okay, you know, we couldn't all make it to Jerusalem this year, although we did have someone representing us in Jerusalem for Passover, and uh, I was really happy about that. But, you know, just because we can't go to Jerusalem doesn't mean we don't do Passover. Uh, the temple isn't standing and the, the priests aren't able to uh, do those lambs and do the lamb slaughtering and everything, but that doesn't mean we don't do Passover. We still do it, right? Um, you know, some, some of us even do Sukkot in the fall. Some of us actually camp out <laughs> for the seven days, even though technically only residents of Israel are required to dwell in Sukkot for seven days. So again, we, we do what we can. And you see that all the way through it. There's an interesting example of this uh, principle, actually, in a book called the Didache, which is Greek for the teaching. It's short for the, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. This is an extra-biblical document, but it's the oldest writing from the early believing community that we have outside of the, the canon of the New Testament itself. It was written, uh, they theorized, between 70 and 100. And it's basically a summary of the teachings of Messiah's emissaries. And it's fascinating to read the Didache because it reflects Hebrew terms and idioms throughout it. You can just see them moving beneath the surface. Um, it, it actually speaks favorably about the Torah and Jewish custom. And when you read 
traditional Christian commentary on it, they have a hard time with some of this because it, these guys are talking like the Torah still has a place to play in our lives. They're, they use Hebrew idioms that don't make sense in Greek. And in fact, one of them has to do with running water. They can't figure this out. Why in the Greek text of the Didache is it called living water? <laughs> well, because that's the Hebrew word for running water, isn't it? In fact, that was the Hebrew word of the week. So anyway, the Didache is fascinating. It's not too long. I wanted to read you a very short quote from the Didache, chapter 6, verse 2. And this basically just supports this idea we're talking about. It says, Surely, if you are able to bear the whole yoke of the Master, you will be complete. But if you're not able, do that which you're able to do. We get that? If you're able to bear the whole yoke of the Master, you'll be complete. That, that Hebrew word means like, uh, it's translated perfect here, but it means like mature. Mature in your discipleship. Spiritually complete. But if you're not able, do that what you're able to do. Perhaps you're a slave, so you can't do the whole Torah because you have certain strictures on your time. You're a subject to your master. So you do what you can. It goes on in verse 3 to say, and concerning food, bear that which you're able to do. So in reference to the dietary laws of the Torah, the apostles' early teaching was, concerning food, bear that which you're able to do. But be exceedingly on your guard against things offered to idols, for that is a worship of dead gods. So eating things that have been offered to idols is... A non-negotiable no-no. And concerning the remainder of the dietary laws, do what you can. That was the teaching of the early apostles. I, uh, I love how that teaching is being restored to the body of Messiah today. It's making a comeback. So that's, that's the, the first thing we can keep in mind as we read this parasha. Uh, the second thing, and this, I learned this from Tim Siemens, uh, one of the elders in our congregation in Saskatoon. He taught that you can, you can look at each commandment on three levels. You can look at the, it's the three P's of, uh, a commandment. You look at the practice of the commandment. Uh, what does it actually look like lived out? When do we this, do this commandment? What are the details of it? That's the practice. Number two, you can look at the principle underlying the commandment. That would be like the, the why of it. Why do we do this? What is the underlying principle that can be applied to all of our life? And then thirdly, you look at the person who gave the commandment. You look at how does this, how is this commandment an expression of godliness? How is this commandment communicate something of the heart of the Almighty? How does this commandment communicate the essence of Messiah and who He is? So, I, I, I found that that's really helped me to break down the Torah into digestible chunks. Uh, look at the practice, apply it to your life, because that's always the first level. You can look at the principle, and see how that applies to everything else in life. And then, don't forget to look at the person who gave it to you. And of course, the Messiah himself who modeled it for us. Um, something I love to do as we go through the Torah, is I like to look at each commandment, and then I like to stop. And I like to close my eyes, and I like to imagine Yeshua doing that commandment. Just doing that commandment wholeheartedly. Doing that commandment because he's passionate for his Father, and passionate for the Torah. Doing that commandment in the most beautiful way he can. Like really decking the commandment out. That's a classic Jewish tradition. So that's something I like to do even as we go through some of these passages. Okay, so that's kind of, those are a couple of things with regards to uh, halakha, the application of to, the Torah. Uh, before we look at chapters, a couple of chapters here, I also want to talk about the commandments for a second. Mitzvot. Some of this is going to be review, I think, for us. But the Father is restoring to us as the body of Messiah, an understanding of the role that His commandments have to play in our lives. And so we, we cover this 
on a regular basis. Um, number one, Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 5 that doing the commandments is an essential component of discipleship. It's part of that call that each of us have to become someone who actually makes a difference for the kingdom. Someone who is great in the eyes of God. Someone who is great in the kingdom. Doing commandments is part of that. And if we read that in context, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, he's talking about the law there without, a, without the shadow of a doubt. So that's the first thing we can understand. Uh, the second thing about commandments is the root word for commandment is the same root word in Hebrew for your neck. This is your tzav, and a commandment is a mitzvah. Plural is a mitzvot. So what do the mitzvot, the commandments, have in common with your neck? Well, they're both connectors. Just like your neck connects your head and your body, commandments are connectors between you and your creator. They're connections between you living in your, your earth suit, your physical body and the space-time dimensions, and him, a spiritual being. They're connections between, you could even say between like the kingdom of heaven and planet earth that we live on. And so when we live out the word of God, when we do the mitzvot that he's given us to do, it's like we are bringing his kingdom. We are establishing that connection between heaven and earth. And that's a very powerful force. And uh, that's also something that, an understanding that we've lost in the body of Messiah over the centuries. And it's something he's restoring. And Satan freaks out when, when, his people, when God's people get a hold of this because it, we, it makes us dangerous for the kingdom. It, it like shines Messiah's light. So that's why I'm passionate about the mitzvot, about the commandments. Um, the number three interesting thing about the commandments is in Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 to 13, one of them is every seven years in the land of Israel during Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would read the whole Torah to the people of Israel. And it says that they would read it to all the people. Everybody had to be there. Uh, the men... The women, even the children, so you had all your preschoolers, your kindergartners, your everybody was there. And they all heard the whole Torah read. So that, that tells us that from an early age, the Torah is for all of us. And some of these things in Leviticus, they're kind of, they make some people almost squeamish. It's kind of like the nitty gritty, you know? And some people are like, I don't know if my child should hear that. I don't know if my child should hear some of those stories about the, the antics of Judah in Genesis 38 or the, the antics of some of the patriarchs of the faith. I mean, this is a little embarrassing. This might get them asking some questions about uncomfortable issues. But we have to remember, in the midst of those concerns, that God said straight up, read the whole Torah to your children every seven years at Sukkot. So the Torah is intended to, for children also. The whole thing. So that, that's something that we can also uh, remember. And then the fourth principle with regards to mitzvot that we can remember is that our pop definition or understanding of holiness today is not the scriptural understanding. It is to some degree, but sometimes like if you just ask somebody on the street, like, okay, if I give you a word, tell me what the first thing is that pops up in your mind. Tell me what the first image is that comes up in your mind, and then you say the word holiness or holy. What is your average person going to think? I don't know, maybe they'll have a picture of the Pope with his decked out in full regalia with his, his, uh, his staff and his big fish hat and everything, you know, or, or maybe they'll have a picture of a, a saint with a halo glistening around their heads, or maybe they'll have a picture of someone who prays for 14 hours a day. I mean, maybe, you know, I, I don't know. There, I think we all have these different ideas about holiness. And, uh, something to remember is that the Hebrew word holy means set apart. And it's a very practical word. 
And uh, something that, another understanding that is being restored to us is the concept that holiness has a very physical side to it. Holiness has a lot to do with our day-to-day life. Holiness has an, includes things like our diet, how we treat our family, how we conduct business, um, our schedule. And yes, it also includes the more spiritual elements like prayer, communion with the Father, etc., and uh, we had talked a couple weeks ago about how we, we, we really have a, a solid foundational verse for this concept at the end of Exodus 22, where it essentially says, don't eat roadkill. Throw it, give it to your dog, but don't eat it yourself. Why? Because uh, I'm calling you to be Anshay Kodesh. I'm calling you to be men of holiness to me. So th- this is an example of where we get this connection from between holiness and how we live life, how we treat our bodies, how we take care of ourselves and the pe- people around us. So, having having said that context for our understanding of the mitzvot, let's jump into these chapters and look at some practical applications. Uh, chapter 12 is the first one. This is a cool chapter because it's a, speci- it's a special one for women. It's a special chapter for mothers. And in order to entirely understand it, we're going to need to understand a Hebrew word that's often misunderstood. Uh, throughout the Torah, you have these two words. The one is clean, and the other is unclean. Right? You have the clean, unclean um, dichotomy. And some people get the impression, oh, unclean, that must mean something that's dirty or sinful. Oh, unclean, if you're unclean, that's something that you would feel embarrassed about or ashamed about, right? Well, the Hebrew word there for unclean is tameh. Can we all say tameh? And Tameh doesn't have that connotation in the Torah world. It doesn't have that connotation in the Jewish community. Uh, being clean or unclean is simply a status. It's not your essence. It's not what you are inside. It's simply a technical status. And it's especially useful to understand these things if you live in Israel and if there's a temple. Because, you know, if you have the status of clean, then you can go into the temple. You can engage in the service. If you have the status of unclean in the, in, in, in ancient Israel, then you weren't able to. And you would have to probably go through some type of cleansing ritual. Interestingly enough, some of this stuff is just basic hygiene that was cutting edge in the ancient world. Just involved staying clean, um, so that you don't get sick, so that germs aren't transferred. And it, what, it wasn't only until the last couple of centuries that that was discovered, hey? And all of a sudden, the, 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 the ancient wisdom of the Torah made sense with regards to just keeping a, a society that uh, is healthy, that doesn't transmit germs. Um, this is one example of why the Europeans during the Middle Ages suspected the Jews and the Jewish community of um, somehow initiating all of these epidemics and diseases like the black plague, uh, bubonic uh, sickness, etc. Because the Jewish community, well, well, the Europeans were dropping like flies and dying like in massive numbers, the Jewish community often uh, went through those times relatively intact. A lot of them didn't die. And so the Europeans said, wait a minute, we're dying and they're not. Therefore, this must be their fault. <laughs> Ding dong. I don't know how you can connect those dots. But... Uh, the reason simply was the Jewish people followed the Torah. And when you follow the Torah, you uh, you have a basic level of hygiene that helps you stay healthy, that helps you keep from pre- pre- um, transmitting sickness. So that's hopefully gives us an understanding of this uh, dichotomy between tahor and tameh, between clean and unclean. Um, having the status of unclean for a day or for a period of time doesn't mean you've sinned and it doesn't mean you're sinful. 
Sometimes we confuse these things. Our, our Savior himself had times in his life when he was unclean for a day or whatever. And that was okay. It doesn't mean that our Savior was sinful, does it? Wow, don't you love this? We're getting like into the nitty-gritty of holiness, aren't we? Like, we're getting into the practical stuff. This is cool, because it's really spiritual, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. He, he touched the leper, right. So he probably would have incurred that. Um, I have here another interesting book. This is a book based on the research of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, the ideological founder of conservative Judaism. It's called The Etymological Dictionary of Biblical Hebrew. Now, whereas your average person, if they were bored or doing something they didn't want to do, they would want to like go off and maybe watch a movie or play uh, whatever their uh, you know their pop video game is or something or you know whatever it is people like doing. I'm the kind of guy I'll, I I I just pine to like sneak off and read this thing all by myself. Just get in my etymological dictionary and study Hebrew root words and things. Right? That's me. And uh, I just wanted to share with you the root idea from here about being Tomei, about being unclean. And the root word of Tomei is connected with a series of other Hebrew root words that have to do with dependence. Okay? So at times in one's life where you have that ritual status of unclean, then that is a time of deeper dependence on the Father. It's a time to just step out of life a little bit and spend some extra time with Him. It's like His invitation to let Him rejuvenate you inside and renew your inner life. That's the concept of the unclean thing. And that's going to help us understand these, uh, these basic laws about, for mothers in Leviticus chapter 12. So let's look at that together. I was really excited about Genevieve, um, and me getting pregnant and then having our baby because we got to do a couple mitzvot here that we never got to do before. And I was just so excited because I was like, yes, I get to tell the father that I love him in a special way that I've never told him before. And uh, it was also a great experiencing this chapter because it helped give me a, a deeper understanding of the wisdom behind this chapter, an ancient wisdom. So uh, let's look at that together in Leviticus 12. It basically says, okay, if you're mom and you have a boy, a baby boy, then you're in this, you have the special status of unclean or tame for a solid week. And then on the eighth day, your baby boy gets circumcised. He's brought into the covenant of Abraham. And then you have a special status again for another 33 days. So you have a, from the, from the time you have your baby boy until, um, until 40 days later, you have that special status. And like we talked about, that special status of Tame, it doesn't mean like dirty or shameful. It means you have a time, a time out from society to a certain degree to just feel that dependence on the Father and let your Creator just rejuvenate you inside. Now, if you have a daughter, then it's extra special. Instead of one week, you, ta- you have two weeks originally with that special status, and then you have a full 80 days after that. And, of course, we had a daughter, so we got to have that full 80-day special status for Genevieve. And, uh, you know, if you lived in ancient Israel, you wouldn't go to the temple for that initial period of time. But we, there's not a temple. So, some of this isn't as, like, practical, unless you look at it, in terms of, okay, this is the practice, but what's the underlying principle and how we can, how can we apply this underlying principle to our lives? So let's look at that together also. At the end of this chapter, Leviticus 12, and we'll look at verse 6 and on. It says, when the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, 
uh, shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for sin offering. Then he'll offer it before Yahweh and make atonement for her and she'll be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law and that Hebrew word is Torah. So this is the teaching. This is the practical instruction. This is a word that has a deeper understanding to it. For her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she can't afford a lamb, then she'll take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for sin offering. And the priest will make atonement for her and she'll be clean. Okay. Now, the question is, what do these, what do these animal offerings symbolize? They symbolize prayer. Uh, we learn this principle in Hosea 14 verse 3, uh, and also in the book of Revelation. Okay? So what it's talking about is prayer in relation to those initial months of your child's life. And I believe the symbolism in the number of days explains a lot of this to us. Let's look at that together. This, this will, I hope, give you a, a really practical understanding of how you can be praying for a new, a new baby. Whether it be your own child or your grandchild or a niece or a nephew or a friend's child. I'm going to give you a key for something that you can pray for in those, the, that child's first couple months. How, how many of you know that children are under horrific satanic attack in our society? Babies are being assailed by the forces of darkness. And they are helpless. They do not have a voice. But you have a voice. And you can be a protector of the innocent. You can be like a knight of the realm who is able to step in and help keep that, in some cases, save that child's life simply by your prayers. So that's why this is important. Let's look at the boy first. It says that the, the number connected with a boy is 33 days. Alright? This tells us something about how to pray st- strategically for a baby boy. Uh, three in the scriptures is the number of completion. So when you're praying for a baby boy, pray for completion for him. Pray that he will grow up to be a complete man. Pray that he will grow up to be spiritually complete. We have a lot of men in our society that are unfinished men, that are incomplete men, who are often like little boys walking around in grown men's bodies. So this is a very important thing to pray for a boy, that he will grow up to be complete. Um, three, of course, is also the number of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, I hesitate to use the term Trinity because it's not a scriptural term, but to understand Him as a triunity, that He is one, and yet somehow there's this three elements to who our, our Elohim, our God is. So another thing you can pray for a baby boy in that regard is that he will grow up in the image of Elohim to fully reflect Elohim. Does that make sense? That's a powerful thing you can pray for a baby boy. Okay, for a daughter, in 12 verse 5, we learn that this number 66 is connected with her. And this is going to help us understand how to pray for baby girls. Little girls like Tirza, for instance. And these are things that the Holy Spirit taught me firsthand as we were in those months. So I want to share that with you. Uh, six, scripturally, is the number of man, and it's the number of the physical dimensions. Um, there are lots of examples of this. Man was created on the sixth day of the week. The, the first week. Um, six dimensions in terms of up, down, left, right, forward, backward. Um, that's kind of the classic Jewish understanding. So how does this relate to prayer for a girl? Firstly, you can begin praying for a baby girl for her future husband from the very beginning. Start praying for a future husband. I pray for Tirza's future husband every week. On Erev Shabbat, Friday evening, when I pray for her and I lay my hands on her, I bless her, I pray for her future husband and for his family. And uh, my mother and my father, when we were young, prayed for our future spouses from when we were still in diapers. 
And I truly believe that that has had an enormous impact on my life and also on my spouse's life, Genevieve's life. So this is a key that we can be praying for. Pray for her future spouse and also pray for the preservation of the sexual purity of both of them. It's interesting that a girl gets twice as much special prayer time as a boy. It's like baby girls are really special. There's just something about it in the Torah. Isn't that cool? Uh, six is also the number of connection. The uh, the Hebrew letter, the sixth Hebrew letter in the Aleph is the letter Vav. And a Vav is a hook or a nail or a connector. Right? So there's something about praying for connection in a baby girl's life that's very strategic, according to the Torah. Um, you can pray that she'll grow up to have a strong spiritual connection to her creator. How's that a good, how's that to pray for a baby? You can pray that she'll always have a healthy relationship with her family, that she'll have a healthy connection with her parents and her siblings. Uh, you can pray that she will be blessed with healthy friendships, that the Father will connect her with the right friends throughout her whole life, and then he'll disconnect her from the wrong friends. These are all things that we, we learn from the Torah on a deeper level about how we can be praying for our children, praying for our grandchildren, praying for children in the community. Um, each of you, in this room are an honorary father and mother of Tirza because you are you are her elders and we are community and so we we grow up together we do life together and uh, I really value that about just I just love it just love seeing you guys like holding Tirza and playing with her and love and honor and and helping raise her in that regard so that that's some practical things that we learn from Leviticus 12 so write that down Colin when you start having children you you can remember that <laughs> Um, also, one more thing that we can pray for a child of either either gender is it talks in the beginning here about bringing a sin offering and a burnt offering. Yeah. Okay. So, what is the meaning of the sin offering in prayer? We can be we can begin praying for a child that that child will grow up to receive Messiah's atonement for himself or herself. We can begin praying that Yeshua will save that child from sin. That's the deeper meaning of the sin offering. Uh, as for the burnt offering, the Hebrew word there is olah. And olah doesn't mean burnt. It means something that goes up, that ascends to the Father. So we can begin praying from an early age that that child will be caught up before God and before His throne in worship. That that child will live on a, in a heavenly dimension, on a very high spiritual plane. Uh, we can be, begin praying that our children will grow up to be living sacrifices who are living for Messiah's cause and are dedicated to Him in life and in death. So these are things that we learn from Leviticus 12 that we can be praying for children. Uh, also, there's something really smart about giving a, a new mom time off, I think. Um, it, it creates this, this, this insulated buffer zone for the new mom to just have quiet time with her child, to bond with that child, to not feel the same level of responsibility that um, sometimes is placed on a woman in a home. And uh, it's kind of cool that a woman gets 80 days for, for her, her daughters. There's just something special, especially in the heart of the father, about a mother bonding with her daughter. It's a very powerful connection. So uh, also on a physical level, uh, husband and wives stay separate. I mean, they're not like, you know, they touch and stuff, right? But there's a level of separation there that allows a woman's body to just rejuvenate inside and to heal and to, uh, to, to regain that energy. So talk about wisdom, hey? 
You just read Leviticus 12 and some people are like, oh my goodness, Leviticus 12, it's just so discriminatory against women. It's just not treating them right and this is terrible. Like, this, all of this stuff, it's a good thing it's all done away with. But no, when you, when you come to the Torah with the bias that it is good, that it is healthy, that it is wise, and that it is for us today, wow, the stuff you can take away from it, hey? I love it. And, uh, another cool thing about this is, uh, we, we read a couple weeks ago in Luke 2 that this is what Yeshua's parents did for him. <laughs> says this is exactly what they did for him. You can go home and read that in Luke 2 if you want. Or you can wait till next year and uh, we'll read it again. Unless we read the second half of the Brit Chodesh, uh, the New, Co- New Covenant Scriptures. Okay, so uh, moving on. In, let's, we'll, we'll skip over Leviticus 14 for a second and we'll go to Leviticus chapter 15. I think this chapter might make some people a little uncomfortable. It addresses some things that we don't usually talk about in our society. But the reason the Torah talks about them is because God is trying to say that everything in our lives is important to Him. That every detail matters. That holiness is a part of our, our regular lives. And the stuff that the world might just look at is common. But God says, no. The things that the world would want you to consider as common are actually holy. A couple examples are in Leviticus 15, 16 to 18. talks about if a man has an emission, he is to wash his whole body in water and throw his clothes in the washer. Now, this is cool. Have you ever considered this? Just having a bath or taking a shower, according to the Torah, is actually a sacred act. It's an element of holiness. Wow, hey? Just uh, throwing your clothes in the wash, that's an element of holiness, according to God. Remember the next time you do the laundry, you're doing the laundry for him. This is an element of holiness in your life. You know, when you when you put on your, your fresh, clean socks and you just wiggle your toes around and they just feel so good. I don't know about you, but I love putting on clean socks. Remember, that's part of holiness. That's part of the Father being involved in your life. Isn't that cool? <laughs> also in Leviticus 15, 90-24, we have some basic... Uh, Usually in the Jewish world, it's called the laws of Nidah. They're special for women, just like the previous verses had a couple special ones for men. And uh, it's basically like a woman is in her monthly course. Again, it's a, it's a time to not to like be isolated from society or necessarily, but the the principle there is to like have more quiet time. Um, let it be a time of greater dependence on the Father. Let it be a time when you let Him rejuvenate you inside and bring new life to your spirit. That's the idea behind that, right? And uh, I think that's very wise also. Um, <laughs> okay, here's, here's something interesting. Like, according to the scriptural law, during the week when a woman is having her period, they don't, like, a married couple doesn't engage in conjugal relations, right? And it says that really clearly in Leviticus 18.19. It's a big no-no. Um, Generally, I don't know if people practice that or not. I, I can't say that I've taken a poll of people in the Messianic community or in the church. But generally in the Messianic community, this is, you know, we see this as a commandment, so we do this. And uh, there are some great books by, by Jewish authors about just the, the, how good it is for marriage to take that week off. Um, they compare it to like having a monthly honeymoon when, they, when a couple comes back together again. There's something smart about that. And there's also something, I think, that communicates respect for, to a woman also. So um, I really like the commandment. That's a good practical commandment. I'm going to tell you something interesting about Orthodox Judaism. I think this is an area in which Orthodox Judaism adds to the word. 
If we come from a Christian background, we'll often have a problem with taking away from the Word. We like to just take our scissors and cut stuff out that, you know, that we don't like or that would in- imply change or whatever, right? Or it's like, yeah, we'll just, we'll just ignore that and we can reason it away one way or another. But in the Jewish world, it's the opposite. Jewish people usually have more of a problem with adding to the Word, you know? Extra biblical traditions. Well, you know, let's wash your hands and then, and bless God who's commanded us to wash our hands even though He, he doesn't. Stuff like that, right? Okay, here's an example of that. In Orthodox Judaism, Instead of taking one week off, you know, on a monthly basis for a married couple, they take two weeks off. That's, that's Orthodox Jewish law. And uh, they base that on a misinterpretation of Leviticus 15.28. Um, after these laws, specifically for men and then for women, in Leviticus chapter 15, it has a special set of laws for a woman whose period or flow lasts longer than a week. And this passage here sets the context for the woman with the issue of blood who took hold of the, the tzitzit on the master's tallit, who took hold of the, the corner of his garment. This passage, uh, this is something that she lived with on a daily basis. And it, it was challenging in that society to have that experience. But uh, in 1528 it says, when she becomes clean from her discharge, she'll count off for herself seven days, and afterwards she'll be clean. So uh, Orthodox Judaism takes this verse out of this context for a woman who's, you know, who peri- whose period goes on longer, whatever, and it applies it to the previous passage about just a hus- like a husband and wife taking that week off. And that's where they get the idea of uh, a couple taking, having two weeks of abstinence. Now, I think that's an example of making the Torah a greater burden than what it has to be. And I don't agree with that interpretation. So, How's that for getting into the nitty-gritty of holiness, hey? How's that for looking at some of these practical commandments in Leviticus and and just seeing how we can apply them to our lives and understanding the principle behind them, understanding what it tells us about the person of Messiah and also what it tells us about our loving Father, our wise, sagely Father who gave us these practical instructions. I just think that's so cool. Just to think that these commandments related to like very basic physical functions they, they tell us that he's involved on every level of our existence. He is involved on a level of your existence that you're not even conscious of. Think about this for a second. On a cellular level, on an atomic level, um, Paul wrote that the, Messiah, the, the, the whole universe, the cosmos in Greek, are held together in Messiah. Because Messiah is the word of Elohim in whom everything is held together. Just like in my tzitzit, the, 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 the white strings are held together in the, the blue strings and the knots. The universe is held together on an atomic level through Messiah. That means every single atom in your body, He knows about every single atom, and He is holding them together through Messiah. Wow, hey? I don't know, sometimes I just think about that and I get chills. <laughs> so, I also find that when we begin thinking on that level, it just opens my mind to walk with the Father every day so closely, to live with the deep awareness of His presence, that He truly is the I Am, here and now, in my body and in my life. Okay, so let's uh, we, we hit the first chapter and the last chapter, chapters 13 and 15. Let's look at chapter 14 now. Oh, man. This chapter is about uh, the ritual that it's, that a leper goes through in order to be pronounced clean. Now, the middle verse in the Torah 
is in this chapter. We talked about the middle word and the middle letter of the Torah. This is the parasha in the chapter that has the middle verse. It's in uh, Leviticus 13.33. And it's uh, specifically the letter that's enlarged. There's a gimel in Hitgalach, like, and, and he, will, uh, he will be shaved. So it's like this big enlarged Hebrew gimel, just to make that point clear. Now, this is interesting. Chapter 14 is the heart of the Torah. Therefore, chapter 14 is also going to communicate something to us about the heart of the Father, and it's going to communicate to us something about the heart of the Gospel. Who wants to go there with me? I don't know about you, but when I start thinking about the Torah and how it points to Messiah and how it communicates the Gospel on a deep level, like, I don't know, I get really excited. I start kind of jumping around inside, and my voice probably goes up a couple decibels. I don't know. But that's what we're going to look at now. Okay, chapter 13, verses 2 and 9 talk about when tzara'at is on a person. And the Hebrew word there, it's translated by the NASB as man, but it isn't the word for man. It's not ish, it's the word adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for humanity. All of the children of Adam. So it says, when there is leprosy, when there is tzara'at on adam, on humanity, there's a deeper teaching there. It's simply this. If you want the Torah's medical diagnosis on the spiritual condition of humanity, then you need to understand leprosy. Because the Torah says that all of us are born lepers on a spiritual level. Each of us being disconnected from our Creator, and before we experience His salvation through Messiah, each of us is a soul leper. Now, we live in the West, and leprosy has been eradicated in Western society. And thank Elohim for that. But that's the good part. The bad part is that we are insulated from leprosy in our society. And because we're insulated from understanding what leprosy is all about and the horror of it and, and the, 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 the tragedy of it, we also miss, we miss something of the gospel. We, you know, we read about Yeshua healing the leper and it goes over our heads. It doesn't impact us on a deep emotional level like it should. And uh, because of that, I want to talk for a moment about leprosy, what it is and what it does. And I just uh, cut a short section out of the, the infallible Wikipedia. And so I'll just read you a short section from the infallible Wikipedia. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, leprosy, or Hansen's disease, is a chronic disease of the peripheral nerves and mucosa of the upper respiratory tract. Skin lesions are the primary external sign. Left untreated, leprosy can be progressive, causing permanent damage to the skin, nerves, limbs, and eyes. Historically, leprosy has affected humanity for over 4,000 years. It's interesting they advance in that figure. DNA taken from the shrouded remains of a man discovered in a tomb next to the old city of Jerusalem shows him to be the first human proven to have suffered from leprosy. Did you get that? The oldest known case of leprosy is from DNA taken from the shrouded remains of a man discovered in a tomb next to the old city of Jerusalem. I don't know. There's just something about that that sends chills through me. I just feel like that is significant. I'm not going to get into all the details of that. But um, that, so what we learned from that is le- le- leprosy is a picture of humanity. And I have a couple pictures of leprosy that I pulled off of Google Image and I'd like to share them with you. Um, these pictures are sad pictures. These pictures brought tears to my eyes. Le- leprosy is a tragic thing. It disfigures people. If you don't want to see these pictures, you can look at your Bible or whatever, and that's okay. 
Okay. What? Yeah, it does. It does. But the reason, the reason I want to go through these pictures, and if you want to, you can go through them with me. There are like three or four, is because I want us to understand what leprosy is about. So that we can understand what this cleansing of the leper is about. And so we can understand that element of Messiah's mission to cleanse lepers. That mission he gave his disciples to cleanse the lepers. So, um, you want to flip through those or I can? That's a picture, I think, from the 1800s of a man whose face is disfigured with leprosy. And that's another sad picture of just what leprosy does to someone's face. And just think about this for a second. Our faces and our bodies were created in the image of Yahweh. We were made to, to reflect what he looks like. And leprosy disfigures that. And, and likewise, there's something about spiritual leprosy that disfigures his image in our souls. Do you know what I mean? These are two other pictures. You can just see those people's hands, how their, 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 their fingers literally rot away. They fall off. They often lose their eyesight and they just become so disfigured. Here's another really sad picture of a man in a leper colony who's lost his hands and lost his eyesight. And then finally, here's an artist's depiction of Yeshua touching the leper and cleansing the leper and healing him. So leprosy, even though we're insulated from it in the West, is still alive and well in this world. There are over a thousand leper colonies in India alone, not to mention the rest of Asia and the rest of Africa. Um, you can get on Wikipedia, look at the statistics. There's, thankfully, a lot of people are being healed from leprosy. There are significant advancements being made in the medical field, but there's still a lot of people who just fall through the cracks. You know, as I was going through Google Image, and just getting these pictures of lepers, like, it brought tears to my eyes. Like, my heart went out to these people. There are, there are millions of people with leprosy. Historically, throughout the, the ages, I don't know how many, tens of millions of people. I don't know if there'd be hundreds of millions, but so many, right? And the Father loves every one of these people. His heart goes out to every one of these people. If, if it brought tears to my eyes, I can't help but think of, of how the creator of the universe feels about us as the sons of Adam, of all of humanity, being so deeply marred by spiritual leprosy. I don't know, maybe you've met someone like that before. I'm sure we've all encountered people. You can just tell their souls are marred by spiritual leprosy. They're, they're disfigured. They're, they're twisted. They're, they, they just don't reflect the Father's life or Messiah's love or whatever. And that's why Yeshua came. That's the good news. He said, I, he came to cleanse lepers. There are multiple instances of him cleansing lepers and healing them, restoring them. There's even the story of Naaman, the, the, the Aramean general, and how his skin was cleansed. It wasn't just that the leprosy was taken away or stopped in its tracks. His skin was cleansed and restored to that of a baby. That's the power of our God. That's the power that he invested in his Messiah. And that's the power that Yeshua went on to invest in you as his messianic community. He said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you with that same power, with that same mission. So, in uh, in, uh, Luke, in Leviticus thirteen forty five to forty six, we have a we have a, de- a description of the life of a leper, uh, what he goes through in uh, in ancient Israel and that society. I'll just read that for you. Leviticus thirteen. Verses 45 and 46. It says, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered. And he must cover his mustache and cry, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. 
He's unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And that is the description of each of us to the degree that sin has infected our lives, to the degree that satanic deception has marred us, to the degree that we are not yet restored internally. And that's the good news. Like, Messiah came to restore the image of God in you and in me. He came to bring, to restore our souls back to the original. He came to restore that beauty and that sweetness and that pleasantness and that light and that grace. And that's the mission that we're on, to bring that to the world. Wow, hey? So, in closing, I want to take you through each of these steps that the priest would take the leper through for his cleansing. And we're just going to look at how that communicates the gospel. How does that sound? I actually identified 17, at least 17 specific steps or actions in this ritual of cleansing the leper. In, uh, it's in Leviticus 14. Um, you could say that this, I, I like this. I've really been coming to appreciate this about, about Elohim, about God. Um, he, he speaks often in the language of symbol. He often communicates deep things through rituals that don't make sense or almost look mystical or something. It's just the way he is. It's the way he communicates. And I love that about him. And uh, this, is a, this is a great example of this. This is also like a visual aid. This is uh, like a story acted out. So let's look at that together. In uh, Leviticus 14, the first thing... Hmm, we should act this out, I don't know. Colin, do you, want to, do you want to be like the leper who's being cleansed? Or like, I need a volunteer. Okay. Mike, do you want to be the priest? <laughs> Where's your what? Oh, yeah, yeah. Put that on for sure. Oh, you can use mine if you want. Yeah. I'll just take the tweet clip off. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's see here. Uh, you can stand here, and then, Mike, you can stand there. Okay, great. So, Colin, uh, you have been infected with leprosy, and it has disfigured your skin and marred you, but you have been restored. And the interesting thing is that tells me that you are either Naaman or you are one of the people who are healed by Yeshua. Because Jewish history states that nobody was cleansed from leprosy. That was considered a very powerful act that would signal the coming of Messiah. Messiah would be the one to cleanse the lepers. So, I don't know. Do you want to be Naaman or do you want to be one of the guys who are healed by Yeshua? One of the guys healed by Yeshua named Naaman. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, Naaman's a Hebrew name. Right on. Um, there was this Samaritan that was showed gratitude to the Master, but he was a Samaritan, so he wasn't allowed in the temple, so he wouldn't be able to go through this ritual. So, Okay, Naaman the leper. Okay, so Messiah, like you've come to him, right, and he's, he's, he's reached out and touched you, and, and he's, he's healed you. You just felt the power flow through your body, and you felt that instantaneous cleansing, right? And then, uh, and then Messiah, he says, uh, go to the temple and offer the offering prescribed by Moses as a testimony to them. That's what he said. And uh, that's cool because the beginning of chapter 14, it says this is, the, this is the law for the cleansing of a leper, but the Hebrew is Torah. So what he says there is, this is the Torah for the cleansing of a leper. This has a deeper teaching to it. 
Right? Okay, so, number one, this ritual is conducted under the auspices of the priest, the coin. Now, Yeshua is our coin Hamashiach. He is our anointed priest. So our cleansing, through the power of the gospel, takes place under Yeshua's auspices, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Number two, um, they take four elements. I, I, did, I, I wanted to bring some, like, objects for this, but I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to bring it. Go get some little teddy birds or whatever, you know? So we're just going to have to imagine this. Can we all, like, get out our imaginations and use them for this? Yep. Okay, great. So uh, you're going to take two clean live birds. So um, put them in your hands there. Okay, good. So you have two birds. They're pigeons or turtle doves. Which one do you think you brought? Pigeons. pigeons okay, two pigeons. And uh, they're both alive. And then um, you have cedar wood. So you have a chunk of cedar wood. Yeah, yeah. And you have a scarlet string, really thick, bright red one. And then you have some hyssop, branch of hyssop. Okay, great, great. So we have our stuff. Okay, now uh, now we're going to go outside the camp to a special venue for the ritual. We're going to a place of Maim Chaim, a place of living water. And the NSB translates that as running or flowing water because that's what it is. And that was our Hebrew word of the week, so hopefully you all got to see that. If you didn't, get on the fan page for Classical Hebrew on Facebook and you can read it. Okay, so you've got your stuff. You're going out to the place of living water. Now, this is cool because living water in the scriptures represents the life of the Holy Spirit just gushing in torrents through us. It, um, Yeshua talked about that, didn't he? The woman at the, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. I'll give you living water if you ask for it. Because I, I'm, Yeshua is like the only authorized dealer on the planet to, uh, give the living water, isn't he? And thankfully it's free. So. Then in John chapter 7, the same thing. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at, at Sukkot. That's a really cool thing with that ritual. Um, also in Ephesians 5, living water is a picture of the, the, the Word. It says that Yeshua cleanses His bride with the water of the Word. Right? So that, this is the venue on a spiritual level. Just the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through you, opening the Word and letting that revelation wash over you. Okay, so now we're back in space-time here and we're, we're back going, going to this place. So I kind of have to toggle in and out of, like, um, here and then, you know, and, and then into the, the, the deeper applications. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, so number, number four, you take the, you take one of the birds and you slay the bird over the running water in an earthenware vessel, a jar of clay. Okay, so you have this jar, and it's got like the water in it, the fresh, clean water, and it also has the blood of this dead bird. All right? Okay, now you, number five, you're going to take the live bird, and then you're also going to take the cedar wood, the scarlet string, and the hyssop, and you're going to dunk all these things into the clay pot full of water and the, the bird's blood, okay? Okay, so they're all covered in the blood now, aren't they? Yep. Okay. I, uh, here's what I think. I think that the dead bird is a picture of Messiah's atonement. Because, uh, because Yeshua was like, spiritually speaking, he was a gem who came to this earth in a jar of clay. His body was like the, the earthenware vessel, right? That's, that's what I understand that to be. Okay. Now, um, Mr. Cohen, you are going to sprinkle Nahum in here seven times. Of course it isn't. You're wearing a tallit. <laughs> Was it seven? Yeah, seven times. Okay, great. Now, now number seven, you're going to pronounce him clean. You, brother, are clean. Thank you. <laughs> and you are declared clean 
in the New Covenant Scriptures, aren't you? Absolutely and finally clean. Okay, number eight, you let the live bird go free over the open field. There he is, covered in the blood of the dead bird and flying away free. Isn't that like an amazing picture of us after we've experienced Messiah's atonement and being cleansed? You are the free bird, flying free over the open field. Next time you see a bird just soaring free, think about that. That's a picture of you. Thank you for pointing that out, Mr. Coyne. I, uh, oh, it's not over yet, though. No, it's not over yet. Yeah. Okay, that was just the beginning. That was only the first eight steps of 17 steps in this elaborate ritual. All right. Okay, now, uh, number nine. The one being cleansed washes his clothes. We won't have you do that right now, buddy. Okay, you can just do it like that. That's good. Okay, washes his clothes. Uh, number ten. The one being cleansed shaves off all his hair on the seventh day. Yeah, kiss your eyebrows goodbye. Okay, great. All of his hair, very good. On the seventh day. So we just toggled forward a week here. Okay, on the eighth day, Naaman, you're presented by uh, the, the coin in the sanctuary. So you're going to take him to the sanctuary and you're going to present him. I think this is... Congregation, here is Naaman, who was former leper, and he is cleansed. I present you the new... Yay! <laughs> Hallelujah. And uh, similarly, after Messiah has cleansed us, he presents us to the Father in the heavenly sanctuary, yeah. doesn't he? We have each been presented like that. Um, number 11. Okay, that is 11. Number 12. Um, Naaman brings three sheep as offerings, and he presents a guilt offering, a sin offering, and a burned offering. So he also brings a grain offering and half a liter of oil. A pint of oil. That's half a liter, isn't it? Okay, yeah. So he brings a pint of oil. Okay, so um, let's see. You've got all that stuff there? Yep. Okay, good. Okay, number 13. Uh, the priest slaughters the guilt offering, and he puts the blood of the guilt offering on Naaman's right earlobe, on Naaman's right thumb, and on the right big toe of Naaman. Okay, great. So he got the blood on the right ear, the right... Okay, now let me ask you. What does that symbolize? Having the atoning blood on our on our ear, on our finger and hand, and on our toe and foot. Uh, let's just go through these one by one. The ear. Right on. What you what you hear, what you do, and where you go. Those are all interconnected, aren't they? Wow, this is cool. If you have more comments and, and input, just tell me. Right, I I just wa- I just wanted to go through this, and I believe the Holy Spirit will give us uh, insight. Okay, so um. Number 14, uh, the priest pours oil in his left palm. So take the vessel of oil with your right hand and pour it in your left palm. Isn't it cool how exact this is? Wow. Okay, now he sprinkles the oil with his other hand. Yeah, that, your right hand. You sprinkle it seven times before Yahweh. So you sprinkle the oil. Number 15, the priest puts some of the oil on the blood that is on Naaman's right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right big toe. So you put some of the oil on the blood. Yep. So why does the oil, why does the oil go on the blood? What does that communicate? Right. Isn't that profound? After Messiah atones for us, we then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and His anointing in our lives. Wow. Thank you, Abba, for that. Okay. Sixteen. The rest of the oil you can put on Naaman's head. The rest of the oil in your palm and in, in the vessel. 
Mm, flowing down over the beard and over his garments. Yep. Okay. Oh yeah, I forgot one thing. When he was shaved, what is that a picture of? He looked like a newborn, didn't he? Without hair. It's like, it's symbolic of the new birth, isn't it? Being totally regenerated in the Holy Spirit. Okay. And then, finally, number 17, the priest slaughters the sin offering and the burnt offering, and he offers the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. I love how you guys work together. All right. So here's the question. What's the Hebrew word for the burnt offering again? We talked about it a little earlier. That's correct. And what does it mean? Yeah, okay. So what what does that mean for us and our cleansing through Messiah? This is like this is the culmination of the ritual. This is the final thing. Offering up the Allah. Resurrection from the dead. Wow. Hmm. Right. New life. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah, it's like living our lives as living sacrifices from now on, hey? Like I am an Ola. I am someone who lives every day uh, like to the Father, eh? Amen. Okay, and then it concludes that elaborate ritual by saying, Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be clean. Thank you, too. Alright. So, uh, I'll mention a couple things very briefly about how this passage indicates that indeed ultimate cleansing is through Messiah, from our internal leprosy of the soul our spiritual affliction. Um, there's this pattern that pops up over and over in this parsha about a seven-day period of time after which the priest pronounced something clean. Uh, similarly, the, this is a classic Jewish tradition, and also the early Christians, the majority of them, believed that there would be 7,000 years of world history. The last 1,000 years would be the Millennial Kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem. And uh, this is based on the principle that with Yahweh, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years are like a day. It explains a lot of things throughout Scripture. But the interesting thing is, over and over here, after the seven days, then he'll pronounce it clean. So after the 7,000 years of world history, we enter the cosmic shemini, as one of my friends calls it, the, 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 uh, the ultimate eighth day. And we enter into what's described in Revelation 21 and 22. That is where our spiritual leprosy will be finally and ultimately eradicated. That's where... Total cleansing will come to the heavens and the earth, and we will experience the, the new heavens and the new earth altogether. Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 20 describes the, the thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom, and then Revelation 21 and 22 describe the era after that. Wow, eh? Um, something interesting is in Leviticus 13.13, 13, it says that when a certain type of skin thing will cover a man's whole body and he'll turn white, then he's pronounced clean. The early rabbis in Judaism believed that this was a prediction that belief in Yeshua, that is like the, uh, the faith of the Nazarenes, the sect of the Nazarenes, which is us, would spread over the whole world and would cleanse the whole world and turn it white. And then Messiah, son of David, would come. Interestingly enough, Yeshua reflected that that idea also when he said that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. Wow, hey? And that, that idea is in uh, Sanhedrin 97a in uh, Talmud Bavli. Um, also, <laughs> in 13, it talks about when black hair grows in uh, an area that was suspected of having a leprosy, then he's healed. He's, he's, he's on the way up. And uh, black hair, I'm going to give you like a deeper application of this kind of gross passage about like 
your skin rotting and then black hair growing and then you know you're going to be okay or whatever, right? Black hair is referenced in Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs. Um, the beloved, she gives this, this, um, this description of her lover and she starts with his hair. It's in uh, Song of Songs 5, 10 to 16. And uh, for that reason, I think black hair is a picture of Revelation of Messiah, who is our, our, our lover to whom we are betrothed. So when that, when that black hair, that is Revelation of Yeshua, comes, then we know that the body is in the process of being cleansed. Um, also, the word for grows is tzamach. And that word tzamach means to branch also. It's a messianic title uh, used twice in Jeremiah in 23.5 and 33.15, and twice in Zechariah in 3.8. In 6.12. It's like you, this, it's like the Tzemach of David, the branch of David, or the, the, the Tzemach of Yahweh, like something that is empowered to grow, like invincibly, just like a tree root can, can penetrate concrete and split concrete. That's a picture of Messiah, and how his life grows in the body. And, uh, I believe that's also a reference to the body of Messiah being cleansed and healed. And we're in that process right now. Okay. Final practical application of this. We just saw how Yeshua cleansed us. And uh, we read, actually we're going to read it in a couple of weeks, in Luke 17, 11 to 19, it talks about the ten lepers who were cleansed. And it specifically mentions that there were ten. And one of them was a Samaritan. Samaritans weren't allowed in the temple. What did he do? When he realized that he'd been cleansed, instead of just bolting for the temple to go through the ritual and have it finalized, he ran back to the one who cleansed him and he fell on his feet before him and he, he just thanked him profusely. He, he was so grateful. And you see what noticed that? He said, is this foreigner the only one who's come back to say thanks? Like, what's with this? So, in closing, we can just remember that Yeshua has cleansed us and yes, we do want to run and do the Torah. We do want to go and do the mitzvot. But may we more than anything remember who our Savior is and may we be found at his feet, just so thankful, just overflowing with gratitude for his salvation and for how he's cleansed us from the spiritual infection that was pictured by those horrible, horrible pictures of leprosy. Amen. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission 
that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.